Cheers. What are we drinking today? We're drinking a lemon ginger and kashmaha. Uh, uh, yes, it's no. Obviously, it's a, 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 a Canadia. Um, <laughs> hey, don't spill this drink. Hey, I don't hate that. It kind of tastes like a ginger beer. Yeah. Like without the carbonation, like this a flat ginger beer. Trader Joe's lemon ginger echinacea. It's, it's a, a lemon juice. flavored juice blend from concentrate with honey, ginger, and echinacea, and other added ingredients. Uh, a lot of anti inflammatories, excellent source of vitamin C. It's great for your immune system. I looked up what the plant is, and um, apparently it's really great for your immune system. So keep that in mind if you're going to get this drink. If you're feeling swollen, consider drinking some ginger. I think this would also be good warm, like during like the winter. Maybe. Yeah. Ooh, like, like, like as a, a tea? Yeah, yeah. Like a hot tea? Ooh, yeah, that'd be I, I, I don't hate it. I don't know what the health effects are, but uh, the price was right. I do have to plug our website because I think that not enough people know about our website. Well, it's impossible to find. Um, I guess that's true, but um, it's at datetheseguys.org. It's not at datetheseguys. It's date these guys. I'm not saying it's at date. I'm saying you can find it at datetheseguys.org. Okay, now I'm just being a semantic dick. Yeah. This is a great start to our podcast. Really appreciating the vibe of us just hating on each other. I'm literally just trying to like plug our our uh, website. It's has great pictures of us, um, several jokes. Joel likes to um, joke around <laughs> about my, um, <laughs> yeah, it was, explain why you're laughing, Joel. Oh, no, no, I'm just laughing with the way you uh, talked about that. It's like you're selling an action figure. It's like Kung Fu Grip, several jokes included. <laughs> yeah, if you want like two or three additional jokes beyond like what we've shared already, our website is the place to go. No, the joke that I, I think the best one is that picture of you and Ian Koffler. Because yes. Joel used to wear his pants up to his nipples. This is true. So if you want a picture of that, go to our website. That's not just like clickbait. That's literally just a real picture that's on our website. Well, it's both clickbait and a real picture. It's not like no, those articles like, you know that how- are like, you'll never believe these human-animal hybrids yeah, that's, exist. That's what I consider clickbait. Yeah. It's like, you, you click on it, it's like a zebra. <laughs> Did you know these human-animal zebra hybrids? Pretty crazy. Well, what I was going to say was that like... Um, no one like I feel like nobody has like looked at our Twitter or like Instagram or anything like that. So I'm trying to plug them now because I don't feel like we plug them enough. This is fair. Uh, if you want more like- amazing reposted content that we don't talk about on the podcast, check out our Twitter. If you want photos of ourselves and our fans and know when stuff is dropped, check out our Instagram. If you want to see our uh, depressing um, Twitter that only two people like and it's just me and Joel that like our Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I know everyone listening thinks we're insanely popular, and that's not always the case. You know, you can see other evidence of uh, us being very unpopular if you uh, look at all the different sites we're on. We're not very good on MySpace. Our numbers on MySpace are not looking good. Is either. MySpace still a thing? Probably. That's now, mate, let's get to our actual topic. Joel, what are we talking about episode. today? Uh, we're talking about prostitutes. Before we get into this, can we actually give our own views about like? legalizing prostitution uh sure but i do want to do an intro uh before our listeners turn okay. this off yeah, and turn on ahead. something like a better podcast i hear those true crime podcasts are pretty incredible Damn. um i wanted to do kind of a book review but also a discussion on the book revolting prostitutes it's a it's a play on words it's both like the idea that prostitutes make you want to wretch but also the idea that like prostitutes um have fought for like social activism it's it's very clever it's covered in the book uh revolting prostitutes the fight for sex workers rights written by uh two sex workers 
authors Juno Mack and Molly Smith. Uh, I read this about a year ago. I thought it had some really interesting arguments and some... I don't know how to articulate this. It's not written by stuffy middle-class researchers. It comes from the people working within the industry at the moment. And so it's much more informed with the actual needs of what goes on compared to, you know, a more erudite perspective you might get from an outsider anthropological study. Anecdotally, like, I've heard that there's a lot of research in anthropology and sociology, specifically on sex work. And I think that might be because like researchers are perverts, um, like a significant portion of research dollars go towards these things. Um, but no, I, I think it's really interesting having things written by the people who work within those areas. And it gave me a lot of perspectives on the industry that I think are, you know, worth discussing. Um, if you want to buy a copy, I strongly urge you to, this is again, kind of a summary, a condensed version of the book. There's a lot of stuff in it, um, that expands upon the arguments we're going to discuss. And you can find copies on akpress.org along with many other great books. Uh, but anyway, yeah, let's talk about prostitution. What are your opinions on prostitution? So I've watched several documentaries about legalizing prostitution in the United States, and it's kind of like a hard issue to give like a good answer about or a good opinion about just because we don't know about all of the sex slaves in this country. We know that it's sex slavery is still present in this country, but we don't know specifically to what extent it is. We know that it's present and we know that there's a lot of sexual slavery in this country, but we don't know how much we don't have good numbers on that. Um, so in my opinion, I think that prostitution should be legal in this country uh, for many reasons. Um, I think that it would get rid of the taboo of sex work. A lot of people uh, make their living off of sex work, and um, this country is filled full of sexual ideas, and our media is full of sexual ideas, and it's still considered a taboo subject, which I don't necessarily understand, but suddenly, like, if you're a prostitute, you're a, you're a whore. Um, but it's just a way that people make their living. I don't see anything wrong with it as long as they're being safe. And um, I think that legalizing prostitution would get rid of a lot of sexual slavery. And it would help make sure that the prostitutes in this country are safe. Um, I was actually reading a book recently, um, not this book, but a different book called Half the Sky. And it talks about a lot of prostitution across the world and how so many people um, who aren't even prostitutes get HIV because the prostitutes are... Um, put into uh, sexual slavery at a young age and are given HIV and die very young because um, condoms are just not used. And um, so I think there are many ways that we can make sure that everyone is being safe pertaining to their sex life. Joel? Those are some interesting perspectives. I think the book touches upon all of those and addresses those concerns in kind. Um, my current perspectives, I don't really see it as different than other jobs. Um, I do think all jobs are kind of exploitation of some kind and involve taking money from people and you may be doing things you don't necessarily want to do. Capitalism. Yeah. Um, I was on the fence for a while because I recognize it's a very dangerous industry and I thought that maybe banning certain types of sex work would keep people safe. What, what do you consider different types of sex work? Um, I, I do think there's a difference between like stripping. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess the book isn't even talking about that in particular. It's talking about like literally having sex with people for money. Yeah, that's. And what I, I think it is weird work. that you have things like porn and the whole porn industry, which is totally fine, but someone walking up at you on the street and giving you fifty bucks is considered illegal. So I think you know, once I started like reading more about this industry, I think that I, I encountered a lot of arguments that exposed some of my assumptions about what society found acceptable. Um, I think it's really weird that you can sell pretty much everything involving and around sex. You can sell 
sell sex toys. You can sell, you know, strip teases. You can sell burlesque dances. You can sell photographs of you yourself. You can film yourself. But the orgasm is the thing that you can't yeah. sell. And that's so weird to me. I mean, the reason I want to discuss this book on our podcast that was allegedly about dating for Zoomers and millennials is because I think a lot of the discussions about selling sex directly mimic the conversations and viewpoints have about like promiscuous women and men and the value of people who've had a lot of sex. I think there's a lot of negative stigmas tied to people who have a lot of sex. And I think that it it directly reinforces all of the stereotypes people have about sex workers in general. Um, I think discussing sex work also exposes a lot of the biases we have when we have feminist conversations. I, I think people who call themselves feminist often have like gaping holes in what they're willing to discuss and what they're willing to like find socially acceptable. And I think if you're being an advocate for all women, you have to accept that some women do things that are considered less desirable. And you also have to question why you yourself consider that less desirable. So uh, everybody, welcome back to Date These Guys podcast, a podcast discussing uh, dating, sex, and relationships among um, Zoomers and millennials. I know what they're here for. I'm Joel Guy. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, I think this is especially important because one of the things I learned about recently is um, police investigations of sex worker murders. Oh, this is so sad. Uh, I mean, this is true for a lot of police investigations, but often informally cases involving sex workers are referred to as NHIs. Naomi, do you know what NHI stands for? No, but I know like essentially what you're getting at well, here. Well, NHI stands for no human involved. So a homeless person gets murdered on the street, it's an NHI case. A prostitute gets murdered on the street, it's an NHI case. Because statistically, no one's going to come looking for them, essentially. Right. Um, so I mean, they're harder really cases matter. to solve, too, and I think that goes to the police like typically solving crimes that like are easy to solve, if that makes any sense. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's absolutely despicable how sex workers in this country are treated. Um, and so I want to just you know get into the book and discuss some of the arguments that are brought up. So, Naomi, there's going to be a lot of me reading and you listening. Feel free to interject. As Story needed. time! Story time. So on page one, they start out and they say sex workers are everywhere. Sex workers are your neighbors. We brush past you on the street. Kids go to the same schools as you. We're behind you at the self-service checkout. Baby food and bottle of Pinot Grigio. People who sell sex are in your staff cafeteria, your political party, your after-school sex committee, your doctor's waiting room, your place of worship. Sex workers are incarcerated inside immigration detention centers and sex workers are protesting outside them. So the main thing they're trying to establish is like, Sex work is something that's far more common than people like want to recognize. Um, it's not this thing that's like hidden in the shadows or you know only in certain parts of the world. No, it, it's it's very common. Joel, I love you, but we're not in speech or debate. I need you to slow down so that people understand what you're saying. You know, I get that, but there's a lot of content to get through. Okay, it's okay. Okay, slow it down. Um, so the book is less about like the stats of sex work. Um, the authors don't say that like stats are necessarily bad, and they definitely understand there's a room for them, like tracking rates of HIV among sex workers. Um, but they're more concerned about the experiences um, because they know a lot of sex workers in the industry. They followed a lot of news regarding like the brutal murders of sex workers and so they're interested, how do we like make the workplace of sex safe and a place people can actually survive and make a living? So yeah, this book contains a lot of like really shocking, horrific anecdotes and again, I would suggest that like you really dig into this and get yourself your own copy if you're interested in following up on some of the things that they claim. So one of the interesting things they argue, and they get into this really quickly, is that people seem to misunderstand like 
how political sex work has been. Sex work has always been like kind of at the forefront of women-centered activism. They argue, in fact, that sex workers are the original feminists. In medieval Europe, for instance, brothel workers formed guilds and occasionally engaged in strikes or street protests in response to crackdowns, workplace closures, or unacceptable working conditions. 15th century prostitutes, arraigned before city councils in Bavaria, asserted that their activities constituted work rather than a sin. One prostitute wrote in the Times of London 1859 to state, I conduct myself prudently and defy you and your policemen too. Why stand there mouthing with sleek face about morality? What is morality? In 1917, 200 prostitutes marched in San Francisco in what has been called the original Women's March to demand an end to brothel closures. A speaker at the march declared nearly every one of these women is a mother or has someone depending on her. They are driven into this life by economic conditions. You don't do any good by attacking us. Why don't you attack those conditions? Now, I think that's a really striking argument, and it's one that I'm going to return to a couple of times because it's like the main theme of the book. If you have an issue with prostitution and sex work, often you need to confront the reality that people don't do this because like they're horribly damaged or they, they don't do this because like they find sex work appealing and fun and a cool way to say fuck you to they society. They can. They can. That is a reason why people go into sex work, but that is not uh, the main reason. Yes. Well, we're going to get to that. The main idea is if you have a problem with people selling sex on the streets, you really have a problem with the conditions that force them to do that. And you need to be honest with yourself about why people are out there. Now, what's also interesting is that there's a lot of mutual aid done among sex work and prostitutes. Uh, For instance, in 19th century Great Britain and Ireland, prostitutes created communities of mutual aid, sharing income and child care. A journalist observed at the time that the ruling principle here is to share each other's fortunes. In hard times, one family readily helps another or several help one. What each company get is thrown into a common purse and the nest is provisioned out of it. Likewise, Watembezi, or street-based women in colonial era Nairobi, form financial ties to one another, paying each other's fines or bequeathing assets to one another when they died. Although largely invisible to outsiders, this sharing of resources, including money, workspaces, and even clients, persists as a significant form of sex worker activism today. Workers often collectively pitch in to prevent an eviction or to offer emergency housing. This kind of community resource sharing is often the only safety net sex workers have if they're robbed at work or if assault means they have, they need time off to heal. So, like... Mutual aid is often the birthplace of collective activism. Like a lot of movements that involve activism only succeed when people pool their resources. They can do stuff like take time off work or, you know, suffer through the potential of getting fired. So it's really interesting that like in an industry that really isn't regulated, that doesn't have like corporations and companies that like sex workers have kind of formed these structures anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, again, it goes to this idea that sex work activism is a very original type of activism because these were being birthed, you know, long before other movements so like the 1930s and 1950s. Um, sex work also ties to liberation struggles. In the 1950s, prostitutes were part of the Mau Mau uprising that led to Kenya's liberation from British colonial rule. In the 1960s and 70s, they were part of the riots at Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco and the Stonewall Inn in New York that kickstarted the liberation movement, the LGBTQ liberation movement in the United States. In times of rapid social change, working-class sex workers are often the heart of the action. As sex worker activist Margot St. James has put it, it takes about two minutes to politicize a hooker. I don't think you can have really a conversation about sex work and prostitution without bringing up politics. I don't know how you depoliticize See, the concept you keep of saying sex. politics, and I think that's really funny because, like, when I think of prostitutes, I think of, like, those, like, high-class prostitutes. I say high class like with quotations because like I, I I hate that there's like a term for like low class prostitutes and like high class prostitutes. Hey, these I mean? are your words, not mine. No, but like you know what you're talking about. Like there's a difference between like a prostitute is a prostitute is a prostitute, but a uh, I think their escorts are for like uh, NFL players, NBA players, and like politicians. But you said po- uh, pol- like 
prostitution is political. And I think that's really funny because like, I always think about like politicians that are involved with prostitutes or escorts. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause you often do hear about like politicians being involved with high class escorts at like fancy hotels. Very rarely it's like, Oh, he was caught, you know, ordering sex off the street from, you know, a street sex worker or whatever. I really want to be a madam in like DC and know what that's like. Um, I would argue you should be a madam in like a Super Bowl, in an area that's about to host a Super Bowl. I hear Ooh. the rates of sex work pay go up considerably in the weeks leading up to the Super Bowl. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, so Margot St. James was a fierce defender of the heavily policed sexual deviance in her San Fran community. It's well past time for whores to organize, she said in an interview. The homosexuals organized and the cops are afraid to harass them anymore. That's an interesting point. You have a lot more political power when you work together as a group rather than individually, which is perhaps why there have been so many attempts throughout history to crack down on sex work. As a unified sex work front would be much harder to uh, police and also would be a group that could, you know, make changes to the working conditions and, like, pass laws to keep them safe. There's a lot of reasons they there are not currently a lot of laws in place to protect sex workers and the reason that the ones in place like actually do more damage to them. And we'll get to that. So the 1970s, an era when sex workers had barely in a public platform, she organized for gay liberation alongside Harvey Milk. She formed the Call Off Your Own Tired Ethics Committee, or Coyote, got the practice of quarantine and forced medication for arrested sex workers overturned in California, and hosted 12,000 attendees at her hookers ball events, including celebrities and politicians. Um, the Coyote is an interesting group, and that hookers ball, I believe, had the slogan, it's the only place where you know you're going to come. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they have a lot of fun with that. So yeah, the book talks a lot about, you know, groups in India, groups in Brazil, Australia, Thailand, South Africa, and Uruguay, um, sex workers coming together and like unionizing and achieving greater rights. It turns out that because so many people are involved in sex work, when you get them working on anything, they can achieve change pretty quickly just because there's so many of them. And also they provide a service that a lot of people don't want going away. So um, yeah, uh, if you're interested in changing the world, look to sex workers for inspiration. There was an interesting change to discuss on page nine um, about prostitutes' relationship with feminism. So in the mid-19th century, as middle-class women emerged into the public sphere of their professions, a new kind of role was invented, which married the ideal values and attributes of middle-class femininity to paid employment. This can be thought of as a feminist project, as the alleged moral superiority of these women justified their taking a more public role in society, including working outside the home, the legal right to own property, the vote, and so on. But the creation of the professionalized caring roles, such as philanthropic and social work, was about employment that reproduced rather than upset gender roles. Right. So it's you're a professional woman if you do something that's lady like that doesn't give you independence or, you know, allows you to go strike off on your own without a man. These people were reasserting their position in class hierarchy over working class people, particularly working class women and children who were targeted as recipients from maternalistic and coercive forms of care. This led to the development of what anthropologist Lauren Augustine terms the rescue industry, meaning the various systems of social rewards associated with reforming prostitutes as well as protecting children and rescuing animals. The author notes that if you implicitly bracket animals, children, and prostitutes together, it gives an idea of how you view women who sell sex. You are as good as and as worthy of respect of as children and animals. So that's really cool, Uh, really denying their autonomy there. Feminist discomfort with proximity to sex workers reached a fever pitch during the sex wars in the 1980s and 90s. In this era, radical feminists locked horns with pro-sex feminists of the issues of pornography and prostitution. The radical feminist perspective on sex work holds that it reproduces and is itself a product of patriarchal violence against women. This analysis could extend to all heterosexual sexual behaviors as well as public sex and kink, such as BDSM. So there, there was this idea that 
radical feminists were describing sex radicals as Uncle Toms who were pandering to male sexuality rather than like questioning and like rejecting it. So they were then questioned and like called out as being prudes who, you know, were too pure um, and didn't, you know, care about sexual liberation and the role that like sex positivity played in like society in general. So stuck in the domain of sex, whether it's good or bad for women, and adamant that it can only be one or the other, it was all too easy for feminists to think of the prostitutes only in terms of what she represented to them. They claimed ownership of sex worker experiences in order to make sense of their own. So there's this interesting trend that they're discussing here where prostitutes are seen as women who are, like, exerting their sexuality. And so there's a lot of discourse about, like, does this mean that, like, a free, liberated woman would do the same thing? Is it demeaning if women do all these sex acts? Is it actually empowering if women do all these sex acts? Well, ignoring the fact that, like, the women doing sex acts for money are very different than the people who just do them for fun and pleasure, mm-hmm. right? Again, going back to your point, there are sex workers out there who, like, do it and enjoy it and find it empowering. But in most instances, if just an average person is comparing themselves to a prostitute, that's not a fair comparison. Because the prostitute who does, you know, kinky sex acts like BDSM probably will only do that if they're getting money, right? It's not really saying anything about society insofar as it's saying things about, like, what people are willing to put up with in order to, like, put food on their table. So there was this weird connection where people are like, well, sex is a way of liberating people and prostitutes sell sex. So what does it say about society? Can we learn anything from prostitutes? It's not really a fair comparison. And I think that's always something that needs to be thought of where it's not as easy as saying sex is good, therefore prostitution is good. Or sex is bad, therefore prostitution is bad. They're very different things because sex for money and sex for pleasure are completely disjointed. They can be connected, but there's no reason to think that the two are related. Yeah. The concerns about sex work um, were diminished by the idea that it's pleasurable too. If you're talking about sex as something that's empowering and something that's good for women, it's difficult to talk about all like the dirty realities of sex work. If you're saying that like sex is a way that women achieve like empowerment in a society that's super patriarchal, it's hard to have a conversation where you say, well, the reason people are having sex is because they can't make as much money as men, right? There are some serious problems in the industry where like women are constantly being raped and assaulted. You can't really have that conversation because then it seems like you're prudish, right? Yeah. By connecting sex being good and sex work being good, you're basically saying you can't ever critique prostitution and sex work, which makes it really difficult to have conversations. So again, it's important not to conflate the idea of sex positivity with prostitution. They're different ideas, and when you do connect them, it makes it difficult to have earnest critiques of like sex work in general. Um, it also is problematic because often when you're having these conversations, sex workers and pimps are lumped together. So people who are critical of like the sex industry will always call out pimps and be like, well, pimps are horrible. Pimps, you know, traffic women. And that's like all like pretty much objectively true. The issue is sex workers and pimps are not the same thing, right? There's the person who's exploiting someone and the person who's selling sex. Uh, the person that has who's, to for survival. Yeah. You should be honest, intellectually honest and say the person selling sex, you know, has independence often and you know, maybe pimps aren't involved in a lot of situations. And this is something they get into a little bit more later where people who work together with fellow sex workers and just like rent flats often are prosecuted as sex traffickers. Who are they sex trafficking? They're sex trafficking themselves. Yeah. But the way the laws are written, the way we understand sex means that you can't really disjoint this idea that all sex is bad. Therefore, there are differences, you know, between pimps and sex workers. So again, some interesting analysis and stuff. Page 22 Maybe I should stop citing page numbers because it makes it clear how much is being tied to the intro right here. Um, Talks about this idea of whether sex is bad or not. And throughout history, there's been this recurring idea that like sex in general and sex work is really bad for society. So like 19th century French physicians spoke of seminal drain and the impacts it has on men. Uh, Puta, the Spanish word for prostitutes, has links with the English word for putrid. Another preoccupation holds to have sex or to have sex in the wrong ways brings about some kind of loss. 
So there's also this idea of the loss of virginity, meaning ruin and a grim death from syphilis. That was especially true in Victorian culture. Um, there's also this idea that ruined women are um, spiritually lost, so they can no longer be, you know, holy people or accepted into heaven. So a lot of like society's conversations about sex workers have always treated sex work as something that's inherently dirty and bad. Um, and arguably, if you want to dig into the psychology of it, the patriarchy's ambivalence towards vaginas is well established. The lure of the vagina is a threat. It's seen as a place where a penis might risk encountering the traces of another man or a full set of gnashing teeth. It's also an inherently submissive body part that, quote, must be broken in to bring about sexual maturity. The idea of a vagina is fundamentally compromised or pitiful is helped along in part by a longstanding feminist perception of the penetrative sexual act as indicative of subjugation. So that's actually a really big problem, thinking of sex as something that's dirty and harms women, because then it opens up this whole option to um, prosecute women for the act of harming themselves in the same way that like you might prosecute drug dealers for taking drugs. Now you can suddenly like subject women to all sorts of like really degrading things in order to keep them safe. So the 19th century contagious diseases act gave police the power to subject any suspected prostitute to a forced pelvic exam with a speculum speculums. Naomi, you know anything about speculums? Aren't those the thing that just, yep. It's the metal device that sticks, you stick into the vagina to prop it open and give doctors a better view. Uh, it was invented by a doctor who found gynecological contact repellent and who purchased enslaved black women to experiment on. Um, so suddenly, sex workers who are really dirty and disease-ridden are things that can be penalized. And so you can pull women suspected of prostitution over and um, stick your fingers in them or take them to jail to be examined by medical doctors. And it doesn't matter if you're a prostitute or not. Suddenly the threat of, you know, potentially having diseases becomes something that needs to be controlled. You know what's great about that, though, is that, like, during that time, I don't think that a lot of doctors were using um, any sanitary Oh, 100%. Devices. So if they thought that you had diseases, they would probably get those diseases as well. Right. So when you talk about sex being bad and sex causing problems to women, you're allowing it to be policed more heavily. You're allowing women to be subjective to all sorts of like crazy standards in order to keep them safe. Yeah. And this opens up the door to all sorts of like craziness. A good example would be like the HIV crisis in the same way, like all the gay men who were getting HIV were seen as dirty and thus not worthy of protection. And so you had to like do all of this stuff to keep yourself away from HIV ridden people rather than like keeping them safe. They were no longer something it's, to be protected. They were something to be like protected against. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's just a, like thinking about it, it's not trying to help the like women in this. Like, I think that they're putting up the front. It make you're making it seem like they're putting up the idea that they're trying to like help these women and like get them out of like their sex work. But the core of it is they're not trying to help these women. They're just trying to shame these women into not being sex workers because they think that it's wrong at the core. Well, I think they are thinking that they're helping them. I mean, maybe that's what you're saying. Um, I think that people who want to get women out of prostitution want to do it because of you know this moral and spiritual thing we're talking about oh my god this person's no longer a virgin how will she get married i need to help her claw back her dignity or whatever um the book gives a couple of examples of like this modern belief that's carried over uh mark lagun for instance who led the u.s state department's anti-prostitution work during the george w bush era and went on to run the biggest anti-trafficking organization in the united states wrote in 2009 that women who sell sex lead nasty immoral lives which they should not only be held culpable because they may not have had a choice um, and then also that the sense that people, particularly women, are changed and degraded through sex crops up in contemporary feminist thought about prostitution, too. 
Dominic Rose Sapotswitz, who runs the diversion program for arrested sex workers in Arizona, that's our state, woo woo, <laughs> claims that once you're prostituted, you can never not have been prostituted. Having that many body parts in your body parts, having that many body fluids doing you, near you, and doing things that are freaky and weird really messes up your ideas what a relationship looks like in intimacy. Wait. Sex workers who go through that program have to abstain not only from selling sex, but also from sex with a partner. Here's my question. Um, body fluids. Nurses come in contact. Doctors come in contact. Mm-hmm. Contact with a lot of uh, does that mean that they're unholy now too? Well, I think the argument would be well, you know, nurses are obviously clean and uh, they they have all sorts of you know gear and whatnot. It's it's the same idea of like the gentleman's hands are always clean. You know, the reason no one washed their hands for a while it was this idea that if you're of a certain statue, a certain class, you don't have to worry about cleanliness. But the issue that I'm having with this is like, okay, it's okay if you have sex. Okay, it's not okay if you have, like as a woman you have sex with multiple men, but. It's suddenly definitely not okay and seen as illegal if you have sex with multiple men for money Mm -hmm. and you make it into a transaction. Yes. And they're trying to police that transaction and say like, oh, even though it's illegal and we're going to stop you from doing it, on top of that, you shouldn't even be allowed to be in a relationship after you're done prostituting. Because you're you're dirty. Yeah, you're just dirty and immoral. Yeah. So remember when I said at the beginning that I think this has close ties to how like our culture thinks of sex? Yeah. Like it's the same, I think, for women who've had a lot of sex with men like while they're dating. Um, A lot of guys are turned off by that. They think, you know, oh, well, I'm not going to be able to measure up or that woman's a whore, a slut, skank. You know, it doesn't matter whether or not you you sell sex for money, just being associated with the idea of having lots of sex is bad in our culture. And I, I don't, I think that's becoming less true. I think our people of our generation are probably more accepting of the idea that some people just have a lot of sex and that's fine. Yeah. Um, but I do think that's definitely something, especially older generations, hold close to their hearts, that you need to be pure and chaste and not have sex with a lot of people. Um, now, I think older generations also tended to cheat a little bit more, but <laughs> what do I know? Oh my God, no, talking about cheating, I read a statistic yesterday that 41% of people in relationships have said that they have um, partaken in infidelity in some in one way or another. Does that include emotional infidelity? Yeah, it's okay. infidelity, and it depends on, I think that that statistic is really like variable just because like some people would say that like touching is infidelity and some people would say that emotional infidelity so it just depends on the type of person it just they were generalizing and saying like any type of infidelity let's do an episode on cheating i think that would be interesting i have some great statistics i was just researching yesterday for my human sexuality class let's find some of our friends be like hey you ever cheated on your partner let's talk about it let's let's spill your 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 tea okay i'd love to talk to my friends Uh, again the, the idea that the book is trying to create is it's not fair to label sex as inherently bad, and it's really, really damaging when you do that on a societal level. When you associate any kind of like sexual activity, especially sexual activity with money, as something that like inherently destroys women, first off, it justifies all sorts of horrific acts being committed against sex workers, uh, but also trickles down to like the rest of society. Here's as well. my question: Let's say you're married, you're in a relationship, you are a uh, stay-at-home wife. You don't have any kids or a stay-at-home husband because uh, there's no need in this relationship for both partners to be working. So one partner decides that they're going to stay home um, and they just get paid to just, you know, sit around and do nothing. Is that person then a prostitute because they get paid to do literally not? They get paid to do literally nothing? Um, and they're having sex with their partner? I, I think society sometimes looks down on those people. I don't think anyone really has a high opinion of say all the people who married Hugh Hefner when they were, he was like 90 and they were like 20. Um, I, I don't think they're treated the same as prostitutes, but you're right. They're, they're similar situations. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, you're assuming that sex is even involved in this relationship. True. It's, I, I don't it know if Hugh Hefner was situation. still having sex when he was 90. I think that's, well, I'm not trying to be ageist or anything. I just think it's a little more dangerous when you're that age. Yeah, you could break a hip. You definitely. Okay, so sex being treated as bad is bad. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we should treat sex as like always good and awesome. Uh, remember how we talked about this idea that like being pro-sex and being pro-prostitution are different? Um, and the authors return to that. So by talking about sex work as being as like something that's good because sex is good and sex positivity is good, you kind of, again, ignore the realities of sex work. You know, if someone's, you know, giving, I don't know, blowjobs in the park because they need money to like buy food for the month, that's like not because they enjoy doing that. It's because they have no other choice. Um, we, we shouldn't disguise the nature of the situation. Um, now, the authors do go out of their way to say, look, you know, there are some people who enjoy, you know, doing webcamming online. There are some people who enjoy, you know, the act of being a dominatrix. And, you know, uh, they, they bring up a lot of examples that were commonly discussed in the 1990s and 2000s of like people who would run blogs or, you know, write books about how liberating it was to be a call girl. And I don't think we should dismiss those experiences because, you know, there are people who can find, you know, a really empowering situation out of, you know, the act of selling sex. At the same time, though, these are sex workers writing this book and they find the vast majority of people on the streets don't have any other options, yeah. right? The reason they're doing this is not because they find it fun. It's because they don't want to get kicked out of their you know, house at the end of the month. It's or because they don't they need have to, a place to stay. Or they don't have a place to stay. Um, you know, it could also be a substance abuse thing where like they're horribly addicted to some kind of substance and you know, they're going to go through withdrawal symptoms unless they can make enough money to afford it. Um, we shouldn't pretend that like all sex work is inherently good just as we shouldn't pretend that all sex work is inherently bad. Um, and so I do think this is important and it's something I want to return to at our podcast over and over again this idea that things are better understood as spectrums right things are better understood as shades of gray this idea that sex work is good or sex works of bad um well boy you're picky the idea that things are good or bad inherently is is a very 19th century idea and i think you know this phrase postmodernism is is thrown out a lot these days and is often misunderstood but it's easy to understand the world as being you know people's experiences um and people's experiences often inform them that you know one thing or another is good or bad and you have to understand that all those experiences have some degree of validity and you should accept that you know for some people sex work is going to be good for some it's bad and for some it's a very complex complicated mixture in between so yeah we don't come away from this thinking that we're advocating for like prostitution being 100 awesome or prostitution being 100 bad we're not doing either we're saying it's complicated and you need to understand the ins and outs to make informed choices about it what's also interesting is they have a whole section about whether or not work is bad um so they give an example where she one of the authors i don't know if this is miss mack or miss smith um was meeting with a scottish government minister to talk about why they'd enter prostitution that's good, right? You want the government, which makes decisions about your industry, to be informed about what's going on. So uh, she describes a situation, this is on page 46, where she traipsed through the rain with a group of others to meet with this minister. They sat around a table, and there were a couple people there. Uh, one single mother with several children explained she got into sex work to support her family. Another explained that as an undocumented migrant, sex work was one of the few jobs available to her. A third explained that when she came out as trans and started her transition, she lost her mainstream job. Man started talking about the homophobia experienced in other workplaces. Minister's reaction was not great. She was not impressed. She observed that we all seem to have started selling sex in order to get money. In a tone suggesting not only she was slightly incredulous, but that selling sex in order to earn an income seemed terribly mercenary to her. She contrasted our stories of those of sex workers who use drugs. They weren't in prostitution for economic reasons, were they? 
So people sell sex to get money. We've mentioned that already. Uh, It's a really simple fact, but it's often missed, forgotten, or overlooked. Uh, This is because sex workers are stigmatized to the extent that their motives are pathologized, turned into a pathology. The issue that I have with what you're saying right now is like society, our society is suddenly okay with people like billionaires exploiting workers and making money off of that. But suddenly you turn it around and these, let's just call them entrepreneurs. I know that some people might have an issue with me calling prostitutes entrepreneurs, but these entrepreneurs are going out and they're making a living for themselves and they're not exploiting anyone except for their own bodies. And sometimes they're okay with it. And sometimes they're not. Let's be, let's be completely honest. But the main reason why they do it is to make a living. Yeah. So we're okay with the exploitation of others, but we're not the okay with the exploitation of oneself. Well, let's talk about why that is. So the centrality of money is more deliberately hidden because to do so serves a political purpose. If a right-wing politician downplays the extent to which sex work is about generating a decent income and instead emphasizes the extent to which it is driven by a criminal underworld, he can sidestep, sidestep awkward questions about the connections between prostitution, poverty, and government policy and align anti-prostitution measures with populist tough-on-crime approaches. For example, Texas has some of the most extensive laws in the United States when it comes to criminalizing pimps, traffickers, and criminal gangs, but the state legislature has repeatedly failed to fund services for sex trafficking victims, let alone fund programs that would meaningfully address poverty and failures in the child welfare system. Pathologizing sex workers, again, making sex work as a result of a pathology, you know, some like psychological issues or like societal problems, um, pathologizing them as unable to make good decisions rather than seeing them as people largely motivated by familiar mundane needs can lead to disastrous consequences. In 2013, a Swedish family court ruled that a young mother named Jasmine did not know what was best for herself. The court saw her sex work not as a flexible job that gave her a livable income, to your point, Naomi, Mm -hmm. while caring full time for her children, but as a form of, quote, self-harm. The judge ruled that as she was engaged in self-harm, she was unable to care for her children and disregarded her warnings that her ex-partner was violent. Her ex was awarded child custody. When she visited him in order to see the children, he stabbed her to death. So here's the recurring point that they're going to make throughout this book over and over and over again. When you talk about sex work as something that's done because people were, I don't know, molested as a child, because they're drug addicted, because they're um, addicted to, I don't know, the adrenaline rush, because they, they fell in with gangs it. when they were you yeah. know, younger. And even when they were forced into it, you ignore the fact that the vast majority of people are doing it because they need money. Yeah. Why do they need money? Because the system's broken. Yeah. Because they're a young single mother who can't afford you know tuition for a school that'll help get their kid out of poverty. They can't afford food that month uh, because they can't afford rent because they can't afford basic necessities. It doesn't really matter what they're even getting the money for. The fact is they need money for something and society doesn't make it easy to get it. And when you start treating prostitution as this like horrible thing, again, something that spreads disease and breaks women, uh, you make it easier and easier for courts to say things like prostitution is a form of self-harm, even if it's the only thing keeping a family together. That's deeply fucked up. Wait, question now. Going back to my uh, situation where billionaires can exploit workers, but mm-hmm. people cannot exploit themselves. Billionaires are harming their workers. Let's just use Jeff Bezos as an example. Um, I know a number of people that have worked and work currently for Amazon and have gone out of their way to um, do their job properly and now need medical attention because of it for mm-hmm. several reasons one of them being lifting heavy things right um in the factory setting um but suddenly that's okay but 
it's not okay mm-hmm. to do it. Okay. Okay. Which yeah, is, it's yeah. this weird Puritan idea we have in society where like, again, having like an STI, um, having, you know, some kind of ailment as a result of, you know, prolonged sexual activity, um, is somehow worse than like all these other jobs, like working on an oil refinery, working as a roofer, working as a plumber, doing things that like permanently damage your knees really, really quickly Yeah, that can, you know, Kill, yeah, you know, you have one in a hundred chance of dying each year. Um, really dangerous industries that keep our society functioning are treated as more valid and more legitimate and in less need of regulation than, like, again, selling access to your vagina. It, it's such a strange thing, and you're right. Or other parts of your bodies because there are male prostitutes. You're 100% right. I, I should note, and this is something you'll come across if you read the book yourself, um, th- the book kind of treats all sex workers as women. And the reason it does this is, again, because the author's own experience is that the vast majority of people on the street are women-identifying sex workers. They could be trans women, they could be cis women, but in general, they're almost always women. Now, they accept that there are definitely male sex workers out there, and they do briefly talk about them, but they say, you know, the only real data to which they can speak to is their personal experiences, and their personal experiences are with women. So they do treat the phrase sex worker primarily as female. Okay, so now to dig into this idea a bit more, anti-prostitution campaigner Kat Banyard, for instance, argues that assuming a history of childhood sexual violence among sex workers, quote, makes sense because, quote, common consequences of childhood sexual abuse include difficulty asserting boundaries. Sex working survivors have pushed back on this attempt to pathologize, I'm going to keep butchering that word, pathologize their lives. As Lori Adorable writes, it's not because of some kind of permanent damage or trauma reenactment compulsion. It's because survivors often lack family support. In other words, people who fled an abusive family home have a compelling need to avoid returning to it and may sell sex as a strategy to avoid such return. This is a material need, not a pathology. So economic necessity has always been the main imperative for women becoming involved in prostitution. That's something research consistently reports. The UK home office researchers argue that. Academic Julia Late writes, several late 19th century studies found up to half of women selling sex in Britain had been domestic servants, and that many had hated it so much that they'd willingly left the service. She quotes a 1920 sex worker asking an arresting police officer, what will you give me if I do give this up? A job in a laundry at two pounds a week when I can make 20 easily? Writing in the 1980s, sex worker Nikki Roberts echoes these perspectives. Working in crummy factories for disgusting pay was the most degrading and exploitative work I ever did in my life. I think there should be another word for the kind of work working class people do, something to differentiate from the work middle class people do, the ones who have careers. All I can think of is drudgery. It's rotten and hopeless, not even half a life. It's immoral. Yet I say it's expected of working class women that they deny themselves everything. Why should I have to put up with a middle-class feminist asking me why I didn't do anything, scrub toilets even, then become a stripper? What's so liberating about cleaning up other people's shit? Uh, sex workers in South Africa say the exact same thing. Um, they, you know, did things like washing. They'd wake up in, early in the morning, open the windows, clean, cook, make porridge for their children, take their children to school, do their ironing for a place to sleep, for a plate of food, not even a cigarette. They turn to sex work because sex work can make them significantly more money with significantly less stress. We we're talking about that example of the Scottish woman who got murdered. Again, she was keeping her family together in order to do it. When you can set your own hours, you can work around the fact that you like you need to raise kids. There's it's a lot of people easy. now that uh, are using OnlyFans in the same way. Well, they'll they'll do their OnlyFans content. Let's just say it's personalized. They have personal subscribers that are like, "Hey, I want this from you." Like, open a bottle of wine on camera, mm-hmm. and they'll do that and they'll do it while their kids are at school and if their kids are having half days they can go pick up their kids at the end of the day and be there all the time and spend time with their kids but still behind closed doors have that sense of like uh, a, a, a guilty 
job. That's how I feel like a lot of people do have that sense of like, they feel guilty, but at the same time, if they can set their own hours and they're making good money doing it, they don't really mind. Um, Yeah, I I think that's a really good point. Um, I think it's really fucked up, yeah, to say, well, you shouldn't be a stripper. Instead, you should clean porta potties. Um, Instead, you know, you should clean other people's homes that, you know, make more money than you. Um, The idea that like, we don't pay working class people enough to deal with the shitty situations they're in, whether they sell sex or not is pretty disgusting. I think it's interesting that we had all these conversations about essential workers back when the coronavirus pandemic started. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they started asking for more pay. Cause again, they're essential workers. They, they keep food in our society. They were the ones that were on the front lines yeah. and they weren't even considered frontline workers. Mm-hmm. It's the same with, you know, EMTs or nurses who get paid shockingly, shockingly little, yeah. even though they're doing what is considered, I think objectively by most people, a very important thing. Okay, so why is this important? Well, it also ties to minority issues. Race and disability are key factors in sex work demographics. Pluma Sumac writes that for many people of color, prostitution is not what you do when you hit rock bottom. It's what you do to stay afloat, to swim rather than sink. An anonymous Maori mother writes, My body isn't capable of working a 40-hour week, nor allowing me to become qualified at something that pays well. I'm disabled and a part of a society that doesn't take care of people like me, people like my daughter who is also disabled. Being a sex worker means I can work when I'm able and have days off when I'm not. I can spend lots of time caring for my daughter. Like other marginalized groups, LGBTQ people are overrepresented in sex work. Discrimination, rejection, and abuse, both at home and in wild communities, increase the precarity and vulnerability in a homophobic and transphobic society, leaving prostitution as one of the remaining viable routes out of destitution. Trans women in particular often find that formal employment is out of reach. Increased school dropout rates, lack of family support, and lack of access to adequate health care, including the means to finance gender-affirming health care treatment, leave them exposed to poverty, illness, and homelessness. One quarter of homeless youth in London are LGBTQ, and of that group, nearly 70% were forced out by their families. It's also very difficult to prevent anyone from selling sex through criminal law. Criminalization can make it more dangerous, but there's little the state can do to physically curtail a person's ability to sell or trade sex. Thus, prostitution is an abiding strategy for survival for those who have nothing, no training, qualifications, or equipment. There are almost no prerequisites for heading out in the streets and waiting for a client. It may be dangerous, it may be cold, it may be frightening, but for people whose other options are worse, hunger, homelessness, or drug withdrawal, it's there as a last resort, the safety net onto which any destitute person can fall. This is why sex work is so resilient. That, I think, is one of the most compelling arguments to not criminalize prostitution. Yeah. Unless you're willing to fix all of the things wrong with our society, and there's a lot of things wrong with our society, it's difficult to argue with someone who wants to stay alive, who wants to, you know, make it another day, who doesn't have a lot of options. When they do have options, the options are often super, super degrading. Your main point that you keep going back to is that the system is broken, and unless you're willing to fix all the cracks in the system and make sure that everybody doesn't have equality but equity mm-hmm. in the system, that there's... There, there needs to be this option. Yeah. Even if the system was like fixed and everything was equitable for everyone in society, I still think that it should be legalized. Mm-hmm. That's just my opinion, though. No, I, I think that's it's really good help. Uh, that's a really good perspective. Um, so I, I don't want to skip over too much in this book, but there's just a lot to cover in this book, and we've already been talking for 40 minutes. Um, so I do want to jump to some of the things they talk about, some of the problems with how prostitution is currently treated in the realm of law. Uh, there's a really interesting conversation on borders and immigration, which is brought up. Um, I think that's worth a read. Please, again, buy this book, support you know the authors and similar books like it. Um, but yeah, I'm going to skip ahead a little to discussing some of the ways that sex work is treated in our society. 
um, and some of the ways that like our law system, our legal system uh, really fucks up people who sell sex work. Um, So what happens when you criminalize sex work, Naomi? What happens when you criminalize people who buy sex? Now, this is what's known often as the Nordic model. The idea is you're going to penalize the people who are walking down the street trying to, you know, find sex workers to have sex with. This is, you know, Jim Bob, who has an extra 150 bucks in his wallet, uh, wants to blow off some steam, trying to hire someone on the street. What happens when you start to criminalize those people? Uh, Does Jim Bob also get criminalized? That, that, well, that's what I'm saying. It, it's a user-centered approach. It's not okay. criminalizing the person selling the sex. It's criminalizing the person who buys the sex. Well, from my limited knowledge and watching cops when I was younger, um, these individuals are called Johns, mm-hmm. and they are usually what? Jim John. Jimmy John. Jim Bob John. Uh, free smells. <laughs> <laughs> um, from my limited knowledge of watching cops when I was younger, which I don't know why I watched that because that was pretty intrusive. My parents went to church a lot, and that was the only thing on television. <laughs> No, I think it was in the YMCA. Oh, geez. You might I think right. it was like in like the, the kids center. Anyways, yeah. um, for my limited knowledge, all I know is that John usually gets off with like a small crime, like a small ticket and the prostitute is sent to court. Yeah. That's my knowledge of it. I don't know how so do you think that's a good solution. Do you think it's a bad solution? Um, I do think that I don't understand why the person that is seeking out is not getting more. If let's just say that we were in support of illegal prostitution yes. in this country, I don't prostitution ad- is bad. How do we address it? Yeah, uh, we're going to criminalize the users. Uh, let's just say I would criminalize the users in a way that I would have the. Uh, prostitute and the seeker of said prostitute have the same sentence or the same ticket price or the same court date well i I think yeah the thinking i think again if you're assuming that prostitution is bad and needs to be eradicated is if there's no one buying prostitution prostitutes will have to find something else to do right if the opportunity to make a lot of money quickly doesn't exist people will have to settle for shitty jobs right yeah so that's the idea again that's implicitly assuming that prostitution is bad Here's the problem with it. Uh, this takes Jim Bob off the street, just a normal dude who, you know, may not always want to buy sex, but on occasion, you know, wants to hire a sex worker. Instead, you get only the creepy, weird sex perverts out on the streets. These are people who are more likely to ask for slightly more brutal sex acts, mm-hmm. like anal, um, which, uh, you know, can cause more damage to a person's body than, you know, just a normal, something like a blowjob or a handjob. Um, they are also probably more likely to assault sex workers because uh, it's already illegal to buy sex. What's the problem of like assaulting a sex worker and not paying them? Or because anything? they they know that the vast majority of the people that seek out and brutalize these women that are sex workers know that these sex workers will not seek out medical attention for one because then the medical uh, person will ask questions. Mm-hmm. But then on top of that, um, they know that they won't go to the police because they themselves would be turning themselves in at that point. Yeah. Uh, it also makes sex workers more desperate because it's fewer people looking for sex, which means that they are more likely to have to agree to go to more secluded areas, yes. which increases the dangers or perform riskier sex acts like sex without a condom. Uh, I used as an example earlier um i again i don't want to 
spread this idea that like having sex is damaging to your body and whatnot. I think objectively we can say that having sex without a condom with random people is probably a bad idea given how easily disease can spread. And so it's important that a lot of sex workers will demand that clients wear condoms, but that's much harder to do when you have less clients who are like vying for your services and they can just, you know, walk down the street to someone else who will do sex without a condom. I have a point to make here. Uh, Going back to consent, if you take off the condom in the middle of sex without your partner's knowledge, it is considered rape kids. Uh, Just letting you know that. So criminalizing the users, that's a bad idea. The authors do not recommend that. Uh, At the same time, though, if you're living in a world where you think that prostitution is bad, you shouldn't criminalize the sellers. Uh, If you criminalize the sellers, you're going to have a lot more sex work taking place indoors. Um, This takes them off the street. They're less likely to be seen, you know, by police officers, um, but it forces them indoors. It also cuts into the income they need. Um, It also makes it more likely they're going to have to get into this system of fines where the police catch them prostituting. They then get a fine that they have to pay off. Then they have to go out working more in order to pay off the fine, so on and so forth. Uh, It also makes it very easy in this situation if you're criminalizing the sellers for the police to rape them. Why? Because they don't want to get a ticket. Uh, They don't want to get arrested. They don't want time away from their families. Again, the reason they're doing this is to make money. So the idea that they'd be willing to put up with abuse from the police is more likely in a situation where they're criminalized for their behavior. Uh, They have a couple of examples in the book. Um, Simply being a police officer, they say on page 125, opens up opportunities to perpetuate harassment, abuse, extortion, and rape. One young woman in Chicago reports, I was solicited by a police officer who said that if I had sex with him, he wouldn't arrest me. So I did. Then afterwards, he cuffed me and pressed charges anyways. Another says I was going to meet a new John. Turns out to be a sting set up by the cops. He got violent with me, handcuffed me, and then raped me. He cleaned me up for the police station. I got sentenced to four months in jail for prostitution. Besides those illegal abuses of power, police having sex with prostitutes is formally endorsed by the state. Across the United States, police officers routinely have sex during prostitution stings, conveniently arresting the worker only after the officer has ejaculated. In Alaska, proposed legislative measure to ban undercover cops from sexual contact with sex workers has met resistance from the Anchorage Police Department. Stay cool, Alaska, who have argued that abstaining from sexual contact makes it harder to prove prostitution is happening. Would any sex worker consent to sex if they knew it was a prelude to being arrested? I hope those police officers get brutally murdered. Yeah, they give more examples on page 130. In South Africa, Johannesburg, for example, the police habitually pepper spray the genitals of sex workers. Male sex workers and trans women are particularly targeted for violence. Port in Cape Town ruled that the police were arresting sex workers arbitrarily without intent to charge them, simply to abuse or harass them in the police van or the cells. Individual perpetrators, even most terrifying and sadistic ones, are not freakish anomalies. They're a recurring symptom of any legal system that frames prostitutes as worthless and disposable criminals. In 2015, police officer Daniel Holtzcliffe, or Holtzclaw, was convicted by an Oklahoma jury of 18 counts of rape. His victims were low-income black women who either had criminal records or engaged in criminalized behaviors, particularly drug use and sex work. He was emboldened to target these women because he knew that the huge power disparity between him and them meant that he was unlikely to be held accountable. He was only caught at the end because he assaulted Janie Liggins, a woman without a criminal record, a woman who's not afraid to report him and whose report was taken seriously. So, again... Don't criminalize sellers if you want prostitution to end. You're going to have them engaging in riskier behavior. You're going to make it more likely that they're actually abused. And if you're okay with all of that, then basically you're just saying there's a whole class of people who it's okay to like brutally abuse. The society is slightly less inconvenienced. Really fucked up way of thinking. Now, I want to get back to something you said earlier. Because okay. you mentioned that there is a really real threat of like human trafficking and exploitation. Yes. And I think that's you know something that the authors dance around. I don't feel they truly confront the issue. They do offer a number of responses to people who are concerned about that. Enough that I'm like comfortable saying you probably know what you're talking about. 
it's stupid to claim that like exploitation doesn't exist, but there are also many, many times where the police claim without evidence that any foreign people selling sex are being trafficked. Um, so a really good example is to think of the idea of someone from a foreign country coming into like the United Kingdom, trying to find the page this is on where they talk about a couple of examples. But basically, if you come from, say, Vietnam or Thailand to the UK, you probably don't speak amazing English. Yeah. You probably don't have a lot of workable skills that'll make it easy for you to get it hired. And if you do, again, it's going to be at one of these like shitty jobs, like a laundry or, you know, a dishwasher somewhere. You're probably not going to make a lot of money. Um, you probably also don't have a lot of savings. You know, the, the income you make in Thailand is considerably less than the income you make. You said Vietnam. Oh, I said Vietnam and Thailand. Oh. Boy, real semantic here. This is the thing you have problems with in this book report. Yeah. If you don't have a lot of skills, one of the best ways to make money is to sell sex. So if you're going after people who are foreign, who you suspect of being trafficked, uh, you're ignoring the fact that most of the time it's often a way that they're they're trying to make money, and so they're doing it themselves. There's not a pimp. There's not anybody who brought them over who's coercing them. It's just them attempting to make a living in a foreign land. If you don't speak English, one of the best ways is to just sell sex. Again, that's not saying this is an ideal situation or that it's like great, but if their only other option is like starve, it's something that I think like we as society should accept. So on page 105, they discuss a couple of situations where this has occurred. In 2017, three Romanian sex workers were arrested for sharing premises in the West Midlands, and in July 2017, police in Swindon raided a flat to find three Romanian women working there. The police recounted what happened next proudly on social media, announcing all three women had been advertising sex work online via a website called Adult Works. The women were spoken to, and no offenses of trafficking or coercion were disclosed. They were very open about their sex work and confirmed their profiles on Adult Works were their own, which they'd set up and paid for. Women state that they do sex work of their own volition because they can earn more money through it than back in Romania. The local paper then reports that all three women were arrested for brothel offenses and deported. The police describe these arrests as a very positive outcome on the grounds that the women are now safe and away from their clients and no longer vulnerable to the risks of off-street sex work. The authors note that it's hard to imagine many things less safe than be arrested, have your money stolen, be taken to an immigration detention center, and to be deported, unable to say goodbye to your friends or partner. So this is part of the issue with going after traffickers, because traffickers and brothel owners are often lumped together. And the definition of a brothel can often be as loose as two women selling sex living under the same roof. Yep. Now, what happens if you're a single person living by yourself selling sex? Well, it makes it a lot easier to be exploited, to be abused. But if you have a second person living with you, it makes it a lot harder to be abused because you have another person looking out for you. So a lot of sex workers will rent flats to A, stay off the street, Mm -hmm. and B, keep themselves safe. Yep. Unfortunately, that then means they're running a brothel and open themselves up to like a litany of other offenses. So while it's important, I think, to go after traffickers and be committed to the idea that like some people are being forced into sex and we need to stop that, it's also important to recognize that often the way the laws are written just makes it really easy for police to seize people's assets and deport them. It's a really fucked up system. We should always question whether or not the people who are being prosecuted in these instances are actually trafficking, trafficking, um, you know, people who traffic or people who, you know, are just selling sex by themselves in a group, because often the distinction is very blurred. Okay, so we said don't criminalize the users. We said don't criminalize the sellers. We also say don't criminalize the idea of like people just setting up uh, brothels. And there's a really important reason for that, um, even you know beyond the ones we've already discussed. And that is the history of sex work crackdowns is pretty racist. 
Prostitution arrests are racist, the authors argue on page 120. They have always been racist. In 1866, San Fran police arrested 137 women, virtually all Chinese. The police boasted they had expelled 300 Chinese women as a result of this. In the 1970s, the American Civil Liberties Union found that black women were seven times more likely to be arrested for prostitution-related offenses than white women. The disparity is no relic of the past. Between 2012 and 2015, 85% of people charged with loitering for the purpose of prostitution in New York City were black or Latino, groups that only make up 54% of the city's population. Increases in prostitution enforcement mean increases in the arrests of women of color. Between 2012 and 2016, the NYPD stepped up enforcement targeting massage parlors. As journalist Melissa Gira Grant details, during this period, the arrests of Asian people in New York charged either with unlicensed massage or prostitution went up 2,700%. Rests on the street target black and Latino women who may not even be selling sex simply for wearing tight jeans or a crop top. They're literally slut-shaming these women by accusing them of selling sex. The NYPD do not arrest white women in affluent areas in the city for wearing jeans. They're also more likely black women are more likely to be charged with a more serious prostitution offense. Relatively high proportion of people incarcerated in the United States for human trafficking offenses are black women in their 20s who at the time of their arrest were simply selling sex. They're prosecuted as sex traffickers simply for sharing a workspace with someone who is selling sex and who turns out to be 17 rather than 18. As attorney Kate Mulgisklu asks, is this the purpose of our federal human trafficking criminal law to prosecute 20 to 24 year old women of color involved in the commercial sex industry? Now, um, I forgot to, I, I, this only just occurred to me as I'm reading this off, but I read a ProPublica piece uh, recently that was interesting. It was about the NYPD arresting users, uh, potential Johns in New York who were approaching women for prostitution. Potential. Well, here's the thing. The women or NYPD people or prostitutes who are paid for, you know, helping these sting operations. Okay. Often, and there are many actually recorded instances of this, like on people's dash cams who were accused of, you know, being Johns, um, the women would be like, hey, can I get directions to this place? The guy would pull over, give them directions, and then drive off and would be arrested almost immediately by a police car who claimed that they were, like, approaching loose women. And the arguments they made in court were like, oh, by the way, this woman was dressed slutty, so the fact he pulled over to give her directions probably meant he was looking for sex, and then he chickened out. So again, even if you assume that, like, it's really good to go after users and sellers, keep in mind the way it's enforced is really, really fucked up. Also, shouts out, shout out to ProPublica. I think we've shouted them out before, but, like, ProPublica does really good investigative journalism. Uh, it's the kind of thing you think of when you think of, like, classical journalism, like, good in-depth reporting that, you know, holds people in power accountable. Uh, go read some of their stuff and support them. Okay, so the history of sex work, crackdowns is pretty racist. We've established this. We've established it's still going on, like, in the present. We've also established that you probably shouldn't criminalize people who share flats. Uh, so Britain made it illegal to sell sex indoors. It's illegal to, sorry, it is illegal to sell sex indoors in Britain, but it's illegal to run a brothel. So the way brothel is defined can be anywhere from two to four people selling sex, and the way it's enforced is often really fucked up. It's like, oh, well, the neighbors have complaints. We're going to keep cracking down on this place. And keep in mind, the reason people are selling sex indoors is to, like, not draw attention to it and to be more safe than outdoors. So it's like, do you want people out on the street selling sex in, like, parks and under bridges and in back alleys? Or Just do you want them doing them it? gives them more of an option to arrest them for public indecency and yeah. then later find out that they're prostituting themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is also an argument the authors get into, and this is going to be, you know, one of the last things I talk about, like some of the things they talk about. Um, you probably shouldn't criminalize drug dealing in areas where there's heavy prostitution. Um, that's kind of a weird argument, but if you're addicted to drugs, you will sell sex to buy drugs. If you criminalize drug dealing, it does the same thing as getting rid of the users of sex, where the only people selling drugs are people who 
frankly aren't afraid of the risks and are more likely to be selling like harder substances. Um, also things that may be cut with undesirable chemicals. So they're no longer as pure. Uh, this isn't a hypothetical, like in Scotland in 2018, 12 people died in a month because they had contaminated heroin that they purchased from somebody. Test your cocaine kids. Uh, yeah, test your cocaine kids. Um, but again, by criminalizing the behavior of drug dealing, you're basically saying it's okay for certain classes of people to die off. Uh, you're making it harder for people to get access to substances. It could be even innocuous substances like weed, um, that they need to, you know, not go through horrible withdrawal syndrome. We're also saying um, if we decriminalize drugs in this country, in all 50 states, um, we should also take those incarcerated individuals out of prisons. This has become a... uh, Prison abolition podcast. Yep. So we've been talking for a while. I do want to start wrapping this up. I want to talk just a couple more things about enforcement. Um, enforcement can vary pretty considerably. It can get kind of crazy, too, about what's considered prostitution. We talked about women in tight jeans being considered prostitutes. I'm which a is, prostitute. I, I've always said that. <laughs> God, people are going to edit this so well, and they're going to be like, she's a prostitute? So one fun thing about anti-prostitution ordinances, in many places, you can be arrested on suspicion of prostitution if you're caught carrying condoms if you're carrying more than a a single condom you can be brought before a jury and people have been convicted on the fact that anyone who carries multiple condoms is probably trying to sell sex you just walk out of like a convenience store with a six-pack of trojans (laughs) prostitute six-pack of trojans that how they sell them there's like like a little ring around all of them You have to pop like a can opener and open them. That sounds like fun. Oh my God. What if, what if you sold beer that had like a condom on top? So like you get a beer, but also a condom that you pop open and just. No, no, you should put it on the bottom of the can. Now we're talking. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that's really fucked up. Cause not only does it discourage prostitutes from carrying condoms around, it also discourages normal ordinary people from <laughs> carrying and using condoms. So yeah. Uh, if that's something that's in your area, um, Try to see if you can get that changed. Um, Also, sex offender lists uh, or trafficker lists. Often people who are accused of being trafficked are put on sex offender lists. If you're not even like being accused of being a brothel owner, which could just be you again selling sex with other people, just being accused of being a trafficking victim has put people on sex offender lists. Now, there are degrees of sex offender lists. I mean, this isn't the worst thing in the world, but it's real world consequences. I think that there's like, like, I know that you were telling me recently that um, one of your friends lives in a neighborhood where a guy was put on the list and he had to go around to everyone's house and be like, hey, I'm on this list. Mm -hmm. And they like looked around on this website. What was that website that they went to? I don't remember. There are websites to track sex offenders. Yeah, look up in your area. Make sure you're not around people like that. But um, yeah, they might just be innocent bystanders and situations like that. Well, here's the real world consequence. Remember a little thing called Hurricane Katrina? I was too, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I do remember Hurricane Katrina. Uh, So Hurricane Katrina was a great example of the federal government doing all it can to fuck up an already fucked up situation. Yep. Um, In a city that was devastated with a hurricane, they opened up kind of survival stations at some of the local stadiums so people could go and, you know, get food and sleep on a cot and, you know, generally survive while the city was crumbling around them and they were doing rescue operations. Um, If you were a sex offender, you weren't allowed in these stadiums. You were forced to go to the county jails. So that's kind of fucked up. 
Uh, keep in mind also if black women are convicted of sex offenses more often, it's a racial issue too. Yep. So you have this. When really is it not in this country? <laughs> it's uh, it's so bad. Um, one last thing is you've probably heard a lot in recent years about the federal government shutting down all sorts of sex trafficking websites. And by sex trafficking websites, I mean Craigslist and Backpages and other places. Those which, stings, quote unquote. Yeah. yeah. And again, that's not to say there wasn't sex trafficking occurring on them. It's to say you shouldn't like be so broad brushing in your approach because often again it's normal people who are attempting to sell sex in order to stay alive um those are really good tools for screening clients right if someone approaches you on the street it's far harder to screen them than like sending a couple emails back and forth to get a general idea of their vibe Mm -hmm. um also these places have these long lists on them especially Backpage, uh which were lists with dangerous clients on them so it was both descriptions of them as well as like ages and names and whatnot. So even if someone was using a fake name, you could still like suss out if they were potentially like a predator. Yeah. And that's really important for prostitution communities. You want to be able to identify dangerous Johns. Um, it's very unlikely the police are necessarily going to go after and arrest this person. So like sex workers have to band together. And when you get rid of the resources they use, you just make them more unsafe. That's really fun. Uh, okay, so what happens when the government tries to get people off the street and it doesn't criminalize their behavior? Uh, this is kind of what the Nordic model is. We've discussed that already. Part of the Nordic model is criminalizing the user. Part of it is like giving people the resources to get off the street. Page 153 says that if you want people to not be prostitutes, there is an easy solution. If Sylvia is earning $200 a week from a couple of nights of street-based sex work, just give her the $200 a week she needs. This should be emphasized that this is not exactly the same as finding Sylvia a different job that pays her $200 a week. Earning $200 relatively quickly and two nights of sex work is a different proposition earning $200 doing shift work on the minimum wage, even more if you're paying for childcare or you have a disability. The problem with the Nordic model is it doesn't do that. It says, here's a flat. You have to pay like 500 bucks a week in order to live here. Uh, also, here's a job you can work at, but it's scrubbing toilets or cleaning dishes or some yeah. other shit, right? If someone wants to keep their family together, they don't want a 40 to 60 hour a week job in order to afford living in a shitty house. They want $400, $600 from a night of work, right? Yeah. And so in order to actually solve the problem, you have to be willing to invest the resources to give people the financial support they need to come out of poverty. They need to be able to do it on their terms, not these really strict, really dehumanizing forms that like the government thinks is important. So yeah, they're very critical of the Nordic model, um, and I think there's a lot that you know is worth criticizing. I think it's good that you know the government's trying to think about it, but if you consider that like probably a lot of people in the government think of prostitution as something inherently dirty and bad, um, I'm sure the outcomes aren't necessarily great. Even though most of those politicians are seeking out those dirty and bad experiences. Look, I don't want to call them out. I'm sure there's some decent monogamous individuals in politics. I haven't met any yet, but thank you. Yeah. That's what I was waiting for. <laughs> Um, page 179 talks about legalization, and one of their big problems, the reason they push for decriminalization rather than legalization, is that legalization is not quote-unquote legalization. To legalize sex work doesn't necessarily make the work legal, as they talk about on page 179. It creates a two-tiered system where some of it is legal and much is not. In Nevada, for instance, 10 out of 17 rural counties permit licensed brothels, and no sex work can legally take place in any other areas, including the biggest city, Las Vegas. In the Netherlands, people sell sex legally in brothels and sex clubs, but elsewhere it's still illegal. So since legalization in the Netherlands, more than 40% of the venues have lost their license, leaving sex workers fewer places to work legally and have to put up with shittier conditions like the ones that are still open. In Germany, the Prostitutes Protection Act of 2017 stipulates that all sex workers must be registered and issued with a sex worker ID card. That's really cool. Some of the conditions for receiving this card include testing for pregnancy, STIs and drug use, as well as mandatory counseling. 
hey, you know what's really fun in your job? It's when people, you know, take you aside every couple weeks and are like, so, still a slut? Still selling sex? Have you considered cleaning toilets? You know, there's a porta potty job. You have to bring your own, like, toothbrush, but it's really good work. Yeah, it's fucked up. So the argument the authors are making is legalization means the government's going to set the terms for how prostitution works. And often that makes it very difficult for sex workers to have safe, fair working conditions. Um, One good example is like in Nevada, if you leave a brothel for more than 24 hours, most places will force you to pay for an STD test. Like just leave. If you want to go on a vacation or something, you should go pay for an STD test because it's assumed that like you probably had sex with a bunch of men outside of the brothel. Um, okay, as you say, well, that that maybe is important. We want to make sure like sex workers are, you know, free from disease. Uh, here's the thing, though. Most symptoms for STDs don't show up for two weeks. So it's yeah. just this arbitrary qualification that is an attempt to like keep people in their place and not venturing out of their like brothel. It's That's not. Really OK, let's be clear. It's not that symptoms don't show up for two weeks because like uh, uh, i'm sorry the, on tests right yeah, yeah it doesn't show up on tests for two weeks so like if you were to have sex with someone give it a good two weeks get tested and then get your test results back that would be the most optimal situation um if worse comes to worse and you can't get an sd test in between partners condoms are great things people so other great examples i think we talked about this on a prior podcast but like in nevada there are no gay brothels so if you want to sell gay sex like as a gay man you can't legally do so because they're kind of you were it's limited me, by licenses. Yeah, yeah. You, you were telling me that they were kind of like those taxi medallions that were very uh-huh. hard to come by and very expensive. Uh, in Turkey, trans women can't legally work in brothels. Most sex workers in Germany live far from narrowly designated prostitution zones, so they can't work in them legally. Australian sex workers cannot risk losing their privacy by adding their names to the government's official register of prostitutes. Isn't that cool? There's a register of prostitutes. That must be really neat to have your name show up on. God. Those in Nevada with a criminal record, often for survival crimes like shoplifting, cannot work in legal brothels. So if you want to give former criminals a leg up in society, they can't sell sex. They instead have to clean dishes and toilets again. Um, sex workers close to the poverty line have no means to pay the rent on a Dutch red light district window shop, which is about 80 pounds to 160 pounds per shift, payable in advance. So if you're poor, you can't make the money necessary to pay for the thing that will get you out of poverty. That's a fun catch-22. In Senegal, sex workers living with HIV cannot produce a health certificate for the police and so cannot work together legally. They're known as less clandestines. Married women in Greece are barred from work in state-regulated brothels. And undocumented immigrants cannot work in any brothel. So again, legalization is not legalization. Legalization is saying sex work can continue under very specific circumstances, and often that doesn't solve all the problems we've discussed previously in this book. So like, if you hear that you know an area has legalized prostitution, you should be very critical of like what that means and the terms in which that's defined. Instead, the authors argue that like you should go for decriminalization, and they talk about two models: New Zealand and New South Wales. On page one ninety, um, they don't think they're perfect. Um, they think there's still a lot of issues, but they think they solve a lot of the like biggest problems. Basically, you can't arrest people for accepting sex for money or giving sex for money, and it's very hard to penalize people for doing certain like unsafe sex acts or you know there's less rules and regulations about like what constitutes a brothel it's taking away a lot of the government interference with the prostitution business and allowing people to like self-organize in order to solve their problems it's a little more complicated than that but in general sex workers find it a lot better than the situations they came from in new zealand street-based sex workers can work with groups of friends in brightly lit central avenues of their choosing without fear of that they or their clients would be arrested uh one example sex worker claire says that prior decriminalization we were in the darkest places just really shady and contrasts to the present where a lot of us had to hide before then 
Uh, 90% of street-based sex workers interviewed for review of the PRA, commissioned by the New Zealand Ministry of Justice, told researchers they felt the law meant they had more employment rights. Another 90% felt they had occupational health and safety rights. 96% said they felt that they had legal rights. Um, that's actually higher than most people in other fields of dangerous labor, like mining or logging. So, like, that, that's a really impressive uh, uh, effort. Um, Catherine Healy, the national coordinator and founding member of the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, speaks to this enhanced sense of power. Decriminalization means that people have a higher expectation of things working well and working properly, an expectation that things can be put right. Who can I tell is the first response instead of what we used to hear before decriminalization, like, well, there's nothing we can do about it. So when you're not afraid that you're going to get arrested or you're going to get, like, tested by a doctor or brought into mental health treatment or put in a home and are told, you know, make money to make rent, uh, you're more likely to report crimes and like talk about issues in the community to the public. Um, they, they say that, you know, the, the police and sex worker relationship still isn't great for the simple fact that like the police up until recently were pretty bad about like regulating prostitution. And so there's still like a lot of trust that needs to be built up. But the idea that the police are suddenly looking out for their interests and more likely to penalize people for like the crime of rape against sex workers is something that a lot of people really appreciate. Um, and I think that's good. I think people should not be afraid of like exerting their rights and being free of abuse. So I want to wrap this up. Page 201 talks about a couple of other examples that they think are really helpful. In Africa, for instance, sex worker banks are a thing. So basically it's banks that only sex workers have access to. Nice. So sex workers who's made a lot of money can loan money to other sex workers mm -hmm. who then can, you know, afford to get resources like say window shops in Amsterdam to get out of poverty. An MLM. <laughs> well, it's kind of like microfinance situations. Yeah. I've heard yeah. mixed things about microfinance in recent years. It's not necessarily as effective as like people thought it was. It's also kind of fucked up that like international banks are trying to make money off the poor. But I've heard some really great thing. things about microfinancing. We should do an episode on microfinancing. Great. Microfinancing your relationship. Hey, remember how we started this podcast about sex and relationships and now it's Among just a podcast and about yeah. everything? <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, so sex worker banks are really helpful. Uh, another thing is just complicated um, support networks. Like, the more access sex workers have to discuss and, like, deal with issues with fellow sex workers, the more they can organize and fight for their rights and, like, give meaningful feedback to how different government policies will affect them. You know, if everyone's super scattered and like, only sort of fending for themselves, it's difficult for them to sell the government, whether local, state, federal, that there's something wrong with the policy that's being proposed. If they're, like, all united and there's hundreds of thousands of people who are collectively writing their congressperson and saying, hey, this new bill decriminalizing the use of, like, back pages is really fucked up and it's going to you know make my life more miserable it's harder to ignore did you know that we live in a democracy i've been I told that. that yeah, yeah I, I, that. I i think that's still an urban legend it's mm. kind of like bigfoot the loch ness monster yeah, like i've seen some photographs of a democracy but yeah. they're kind of blurry and indistinct it could just be a guy in a costume <laughs> on a serious note if you or anyone that you know is uh, a victim of human trafficking there's a national human trafficking hotline it is uh at the number one eight 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 three seven three seven eight eight eight. That is a good plug. Thank you. Okay, so that is my attempt to summarize the very complicated book, Revolting Prostitutes. I'm glad I was able to do that. And what are we this at, Naomi? Story time. Hour and twenty minutes. That's actually not bad. I thought story it was time longer. made me sleepy. Naomi, how how are you feeling? What do you think about that and the perspectives the book offers? I'll say this. Um, I think the point you brought up at the beginning that human trafficking is still a problem is something that 
is worth digging into a bit more. Well, people heard- just don't understand. Like, people think we live in a quote-unquote free country. For one, the system's broken. In my humble opinion, the system is fucking broken. That's why dating sucks. <laughs> the second thing that I need to say is that if there's any slavery in this country, we don't live in a free country. It's free for some. It's not free for all. So uh, that's my issue with that. Um, I do think that it's not necessarily talked about because we talk about, like, sex slavery in third world countries we talk about uh uh, children sex trafficking Mm -hmm. um we talk about that sort of thing because it is such a horrific 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 act but we don't necessarily talk about what happens on our home front because we don't see it we don't have to deal with it therefore we don't think about it um but we do hear about all these charities that are organizing like hey we're raising money to make sure that these children get which i do need to say the more you educate women, the more likely they are that they won't fall into prostitution. So if you start donating to charities that actually do your research first, let's, I, we will later plug a uh, charity that directly helps young women and educates them in order to make sure that, that it prevents prostitution in the future. But if you educate your young women, they're more likely to stay out of prostitution. So uh, I do have to say that. That is one of the final things I need to say. Another thing I need to say is that... Um, Get tested. Mm. That's a lesson from this week. I want to push back a little against that. I th- I think what you're saying Wait, is which part? A little bit of it. Little, all of it. Every single thing. Get from tested. The you're going to push against. No, no, no. That. I, I want to push back into the education thing. Um, education is really important. I think what you're saying is if all these people think that prostitution should be illegal, the way they should resolve it is by investing more into women. Uh, anti-poverty reduction measures, things like that. I'm saying in third world countries specifically. Um, At the same time, though, I think like we know a lot of people who are highly educated who are working minimum wage jobs. I don't think magically having a degree in this economy, at least, is going to make it more likely you have like more options. Uh, that's something I need to flesh out. This is the, what I just said about education is specifically pertaining to third world countries. Uh, it's not a hundred percent effective, but I think that there's a high percentage of women that the more they are educated in third world countries, the more likely they are to have paying jobs and they won't fall into prostitution or sex slavery. So, um, I do need to put that out there. So yeah, women, women's rights are, are human rights. Um, what? D- don't be a dick and try to parse it out and pretend that like everything's fine and dandy. There's there's obviously a lot of problems that could be resolved by uh, treating women equitably and listening to their problems and giving them the tools and networks necessary to resolve them. Um, yeah, I don't know. I like the book. I, I would again strongly encourage people go to akpress.org, buy a copy. Um, it's a very compelling, well researched, well articulated argument. I think they cover a lot of the common responses people have towards you know why prostitution should be illegal and they make it clear that like this is an issue that affects tens of millions of people around the world and if you care about you know women if you care about people if you care about the working class you need to be aware of and committed to resolving these problems i hope everyone has a great week after listening to this kind of depressing episode can we do something fun what's something fun and whimsical we can lead out on let's have a little fun bit um Naomi, um, I, I want to talk about just a, I want to bounce something off you. Um, do you think antiquing is a good first date thing? First or second date thing? Okay, I think that antiquing is a great idea if both parties have showed interest in it in the past. There we go. Okay. Because Fair I enough. don't think that it's something that you should be like, I have this great date idea and they have no idea what the fuck you're doing. <laughs> and you just go and they're like, why is this chair yeah, thing? $3, they're $3, like, uh, tell, tell the girl to dress how she wants to go and how with like three date ideas. And they go on that date. If she shows up in like sneakers and whatnot, 
You ever heard that? Yeah. Or like you say, like, hey, where, guess where we're going for dinner? And she's like, oh, we're going to Chipotle. And she's we're going to the revolving like, restaurant you know? downtown. <laughs> How did you know? Going to Fleming's Steakhouse. You're buying me a 64-ounce steak oh with God. all the trimmings. Did you know that fat ox place I was telling you about? Yeah. It serves two to four people. Yeah. It's $125 for a 64-ounce steak. Honestly, that seems kind of reasonably priced from what I've seen at steakhouses. But still... Yeah. But like I could eat like a good 32 ounce. Hear that, guys? <laughs> you take me out on a date, she'll eat more steak than you can. And then we'll be all weird and bloated and cry out in the backseat. <laughs> like, oh, my stomach. <laughs> I'll get the meat sweats. So I'll like get on a plane and uh, they'll be like, uh, ma'am, can you please step aside? It looks like you have conditions of COVID. No, that's just the meat sweats. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one last thing for our listeners. Um, Naomi. How many tickles should you give an octopus? Ten tickles. Strike so hard not to spit That's out my drink. Positive thing I have to end on. Uh, thank you for listening to wait, this. Wait, wait, serious question that you should actually tweet your answers for because uh, I asked all this this morning. You're you're in Costa Rica, <laughs> <laughs> and your significant other gets kidnapped. You spend the vast majority of the day helping authorities look for your partner, but you have not found them yet. It's 2 a.m. You go home to your hotel room. Do you do your face, your skincare routine, yes or no? Tweet us your answers at date these guys on Twitter. If you have also any great puns or riddles <laughs> that you want us to throw out in the podcast at the end of onerous and emotionally trying conversations. Something I do actually want to mention um, other than the uh, Twitter plug was if you do have any relationship stories, any relationship uh questions uh come give them to us we won't name any names on unless you want that unless you want that that, please put that in the uh, direct message on instagram um if you want us to include your name otherwise we will not but um give us some uh some stories give us some questions we'd love to answer them give our perspective don't necessarily take our advice but uh we'd love to give some i think that's fair Peace, y'all. Have a great week. The intro and outro music of Why Will No One Date These Guys is from the song Drop by the artist Ketza. It is licensed through Creative Commons, and we're deeply appreciative that they've allowed us to use it. If you're looking to make an impact, this show recommends giving either time or money to Planned Parenthood, a nonprofit organization that provides reproductive health care in the United States and globally. Planned Parenthood clinics and affiliates provide birth control and long-acting reversible contraception, clinical breast examinations, cervical cancer screenings, pregnancy testing, prenatal care, testing and treatment for sexually transmitted infections, and abortions. Planned Parenthood also does great work for those who can't afford traditional medical services. Approximately four out of five of their clients have incomes at or below 150% of the federal poverty level. Both Joel and Naomi are monthly donors to Planned Parenthood, you could be too.